welcome to Tech Enable. I'm your host, John Bailey, a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In each episode, we feature a conversation exploring new issues and opportunities raised by emerging technologies. Our hope is that Tech Enabled will introduce you to new entrepreneurs, new thinking, and stimulate new ideas as we tackle the pressing challenges that lie ahead of us. I'm incredibly excited for today's conversation with Sal Khan, who is the founder and chief executive officer at the Khan Academy, a not-for-profit with a mission of providing a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. Also joining us is Amy McGrath. Chief Operating Officer of ASU Prep Digital, an online school serving students and school partners around the world. They recently announced a new joint partnership called the Con World School, an advanced college prep program where the curriculum includes discussion-based classes, high-quality self-paced online lessons, small group tutorials, and peer tutoring. We discuss how they went back to first principles thinking and designing a new education model, And we also talk about the lessons learned from the last two years of remote learning, including why it was such a poor experience for too many teachers and children. And finally, we explore the concept of mastery learning, which structures curriculum not in terms of time, but in terms of certain target levels of comprehensive and achievement. As Sal wrote in his book, this turns the traditional model quietly, but entirely upside down. And now, on to our conversation. All right, great. Well, I am... So honored to be with both of you today. Thank you for joining us. I mean, this is an incredibly exciting partnership with you, Sal, and also with you, Amy, and everyone at ASU Prep. Talk a little bit about what is your vision for Khan World School at ASU Prep? Well, I'll start. A lot of folks know about Khan Academy, not-for-profit, mission-free, world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And some of the core ideas behind Khan Academy are that if we could let students always be in control of their learning, learn at their own time and pace, fill in gaps in their learning, mastery learning that you can just really accelerate and just make it really accessible. And the last 10, 15 years have shown that and Khan Academy is now being used by hundreds of millions of folks around the world. In 2012, I said, all right, that's nice that Khan Academy is now scaling even back then. But how could we how could the actual system be different in a world where tools like Khan Academy existed and given the world that we needed to prepare students for? And that's when I wrote a book called The One World Schoolhouse. And the first third of the book was a little bit of the history of education. How did we get here? And it was a little bit of an education for me too. The middle third of the book was, how did I fall into this? The narrative of how Khan Academy started. And the last third was, given what we know, let's think of first principles of what a school system could look like or what a school could look like. Let's challenge the calendar. Let's challenge where and when kids are learning things. Let's think about how you can go deep on competency versus seat time. And it's one thing to write all these ideas. They sounded good on paper. It's a whole other thing to implement it. So in 2014, we created a a small scale school called Khan Lab School. It was under the offices of Khan Academy. My kids went to it. So there was a selfish motivation too. But it was a place to experiment with all of these ideas. Fast forward to now, that's now a K through 12 school with over 250 students. And it's a lab school, so we're always pushing the envelope. But it's it's kind of shown that you can do this, that you can create a model that is fundamentally different, where the kids are healthier, happier, more curious, more passionate, and they're learning more as measured by more standardized things. And they're getting into great colleges. I've always told the Con Lab School team, It's great we have an independent school out here in California, but if that's all it is, that's a failure. This has to be a model so that we can, over time, open people's minds of what schooling could be for billions of folks. And so the next step is, well, how can we scale that? And we said, well, what if we did an online version of this? And once again, it doesn't have to be purely online. It could be an online platform on which people could form pods. Pieces of it eventually might be able to use in in, in in-person settings. 
we wrote a vision document of what this could be where kids are able to learn at their own time and pace, get competency. It's all mapped in front of them. We also wanted to challenge some of the stereotypes around what online learning people think it is, especially during the pandemic, make it really interactive, community-based, a Socratic seminar. We call it daily seminar being the anchor point, Oxford-style tutorial uh, instruction. I started talking to people about like, hey, we need someone who, who might be able to lead this or run this. And, and I was introduced to Amy here. And we just talked about the vision and, and near the end, we were both a little shy, a little coy. It was, we were both like, you want to do this together? And that was kind of a dream scenario for me because ASU and ASU Prep, ASU is the most innovative university out there. And then ASU Prep has, and Amy, you know, is really kind of the founding person here who's really built ASU Prep to scale now to tens of thousands of folks. And so to combine this vision with the skill set and the alignment of, of Amy and, and her team, it's, it's, uh, it's Nirvana. I love that. There's so much you just said to unpack. Uh, one, I mean, you just casually mentioned mastery learning, but that that's pretty radical. Like I, I remember when you wrote about this in your book, I mean, that that's a very radical sort of notion of the way we structure and think about education now. What does mastery learning mean uh, for those who are just not as familiar in the education space? Yeah, it's interesting that we now would consider mastery learning radical, even though on a lot of levels, it's completely common sense. What we do in a traditional school system right now, and this was really a compromise we had to do two, 300 years ago when we implemented mass public education, which was a big idea at the time. But we said, look, we have one teacher with 30 kids. We can't have every student on their own personalized path. We can't have that teacher make sure that every student fills in their unfinished learning or their gaps in their learning. So what we're going to do is move all the kids lockstep. The teachers are going to disseminate some information. Kids are going to do some homework. After two or three weeks, you get a test. Let's say Amy gets a 90%. I get an 80%. You get a 70%. Even though the test identified gaps, all right, let's move on to the next concept. And that next concept, especially in things like math, are going to build on those gaps that we just identified. And that's why we see what happens. In, in the United States, 60 to 70% of all kids who go to college, so these are the kids who graduate from high school, the, roughly the top half of kids who then decide to go to college, when they take placement of tests, it's kind of the first time that mastery learning in any shape is, is enforced right now. And the colleges for 60 to 70% of the kids are saying, wait a second, you're not even ready to learn algebra yet. We're going to take you to pre-algebra, essentially seventh or eighth grade math, because what's been happening for the last six or seven years of your life is that you've just kept, you have all these gaps and people just push you along and you really haven't been learning much. And that's a travesty. Mastery learning is the opposite. If you're at a 70 or 80%, Fine. Keep working on it. Maybe you can move on to the next concept, but you always have the opportunity, the incentive to fill in those gaps. That's how you would, if you're a basketball player, if you're great at your three-pointers, but you're still weak on free throws, go back and work on those things. Just don't keep playing. Get better at what your gaps are. I love that. Amy, let's bring you in the conversation. I love what Sal was talking about. about I mean, you, you both gave yourself just permission to go back to first principles of how to structure school, how to think about learning. I mean, take us back to some of those initial sort of conversations. Like, what were the questions you asked yourselves? How did you sort of challenge the conventional notions of the way we structure education? Yeah, I think just in even listening to Sal kind of articulate what our early conversations were, everything that Sal talks about and how he's built his team is something that ASU and ASU Prep 
have a shared agenda in advancing and really trying to create new models that actually impact performance. And we all have this very deep passion for mastery learning. And so I, it's been ridiculously easy to work together because we continue to find stride in having um, sort of just pedagogically and ideologically the right foundation of what we're trying to accomplish with with learning. Uh, and then, of course, our, um, you know, some of the, the yucky stuff that goes into a comprehensive school, all of the compliance pieces, the accreditation pieces, it was really a great sort of fusion from a partnership perspective, because, you know, the, the universe of con assets is deep. And then the infrastructure needed to deploy that in a comprehensive model to thousands and thousands of learners is already in place through ASU prep and that mechanism. And so we, you know, because of that foundation of common thinking and the passion for mastery learning, we've been able to quickly put together um, a nice design based really deeply anchored into what uh, Sal's original concept paper has been. So, uh, you know, this, this first year of 200 rising, what we would say ninth graders, but really it's about what have they already mastered. So these are going to be high aptitude learners that are around 13 to 15 years old. We're ready to welcome them quickly. And that will just be an initial year to sort of kind of lay the framework for what this will look like as we continue to open it to really, I say ninth through 12th again, but what will that look like as we slingshot students into university course taking as fast as they're ready uh, and, and open that, uh, you know, around the globe and scale it quickly. That's great. Amy, go one step deeper because uh, as Sal mentioned, I mean, ASU is, is uh, Dr. Crow's done an amazing job moving ASU to the forefront of a whole variety of different uh, innovations and R&D a lot of folks know about the Khan Academy. Not as many know, they should, but they don't know as much about ASU Prep. Talk a little bit about what is ASU Prep and what is that model? Yeah, and you said it perfectly as our President Crow vision, our operating structure is not oriented just around degree-seeking learners. So the entire enterprise of ASU is constructed in a way that every learning asset can be sort of dismantled and then redeployed to any learner from pre-K through gray. And our ASU preparatory approach to that is for kindergarten through 12th grade. And so we are attached to the university and we, uh, ASU prep has currently 11 immersion schools around the Phoenix area, serving several thousand learners, um, hybrid models um, where we bring students in around um, the Phoenix area for um, a few days a week uh, across the various ASU campuses. And then we serve in partnership uh, to districts and service models to just bring new models of educational success to hundreds of school districts. And that hits about 52,000 learners kindergarten through 12th grade. We work with the state of Arizona in, in lots of ways to deploy training and our teachers college uh, and partnership there to try to elevate what teaching practices look like. So really all of this is just the approach that ASU has to think about what our contribution to the public is in our um, commitment to ensure that we are caring about every single student, not just those that are going to end up with a degree from ASU. That's amazing. I just want to take up one other sort of step back because I, I know some people are going to hear about this concept and they're like, sign me up. 
And then there's going to be a lot of moms and dads who have just gone through two years of remote learning. And it, it wasn't it wasn't quite the experience that you all are describing. Like what, I mean, why do you think remote learning was so challenging uh, for so many students and for teachers and school systems over the last two years? I'll take a first stab at that. If we just go in the pre-pandemic world, I just talked about mastery learning versus seat time learning, where kids are already being pushed ahead with gaps in their learning. And then the kids get more and more frustrated uh, because, you know, you're expecting me to learn how to do a you know, behind the back pass when I can't learn to pass yet, right? It becomes very, very frustrating for a lot of for a lot of kids. Compound that with in a lot of places, this is starting to change a little bit, but class time is still a pretty passive activity. Um, you're listening to lectures, there might be a little bit of work. And even that work isn't in your zone of proximal development. It's not really on your learning edge. There have been studies about this. In a traditional classroom, most of the kids are either lost or bored. There's very few kids where it's really right at their level. And we all remember being in school where we're staring at the clock and we were usually lost or bored or sometimes a combination combination of both. Now, and I'm not saying that's all classrooms. There are some teachers who are doing amazing interactive things. But if you if you take what was already the status quo and then they said, all right, we're just going to transplant that directly to Zoom, it then becomes that much harder because you're removing the interactive piece. You're removing the teacher being able to put their arm on the student's shoulder and say, hey, I believe in you. You're removing the uh, fun interactions that kids have between class and, and the smiles and the facial expressions you know, that you see in person in 3D. And it's all on Zoom. You're focused on something two feet in front of your face, and you're just doing that for hours on end. And there's other things you can be doing. You can get distracted very easily. You can be looking at other windows, et cetera, et cetera. That is not setting up for success. Taking something that's already not super interactive and then putting it onto Zoom for eight hours. What I found myself, even as, as my work life moved to Zoom, I started telling people, hey, I need to turn the camera off. I can't be on Zoom for eight hours a day as an adult. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go outside. Uh, maybe I'm on Zoom for real for like an hour or two a day. And only when it makes sense to have really interactive conversations. A lot of people asked me to give talks during the pandemic. I was like, I'm not going to give talks all over Zoom. I'm going to have a Q&A over Zoom. It needs to be interactive. We need to talk to each other, make value of it. So everything we're doing is we're trying to take the best of what you can do with online, where you're not bound by time or space. You have access to Khan Academy. You have access to, to distributed learning through Zoom, et cetera, but really focusing on the human element, not having people on Zoom screens for eight hours a day. It's going to be more like an hour a day, an hour, a half a day. And then, but having ways that throughout the day, you feel connected to community, really similar to the way we work in a, in a well-functioning organization is that I can Slack Amy, Amy can Slack me. If we need a chat, we can get on a call if we need to. If we happen to be in the office together, if we happen to be in the same area, we can connect, be in the same place physically. Uh, but one hour, one and a half hours a day, we have really stimulating conversations. That's great. I, I saw on a, another podcast you did with Michael Horn recently, you talked about the importance of community and being very intentional about building it. And I think it was was there something with a seminar or there was a structure you talked about? Can you just elaborate a little bit more about how are you intentionally building community into the model? Yeah. When we think about it, first principles, there's, and we did this at Khan Lab School and we're doing this now with the World School at ASU Prep, is that what are our two number one things? I would say maybe the two or three is one, we want to make sure that our students really build some strong competencies, some traditional skill competencies. They're three R's, so to speak. They're just rock stars there, but also other competencies around being able to set their goals, meet their goals, self-regulation. 
but also that they feel supported. That I think there's a loneliness. There's a loneliness epidemic in America. Uh, we see young people in traditional settings more anxious, more depressed, perhaps than ever before. We could debate what what are the causes of that. So I think the, another. True North objective function for this school when we're designing it from first principles isn't just how do we make sure people have mastery of the academics, which is very important, but how do we ensure that they have a healthy, productive adolescence? And that's all about community, 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 and collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. And there are ways to do that in really healthy ways, even if one student is in Alaska and the other student is in Arizona. And that's why we've anchored on this daily seminar where we're going to have conversations. And once again, they're not just Socratic seminars that feel a little bit disjoint from the kids' lives. They're going to be about things that any of us would want to talk about at a dinner party. Will CRISPR change the human genome forever? Should social media be held accountable for polarization in this country? Is there alien life? And if so, will we be able to communicate with it? These are interesting conversations and any one of those topics you can unpack over a week in these daily seminars. And kids in the same conversation will learn will learn about the central dogma of biology. They will learn about geography. They will learn about technology. They will learn about ethics. Uh, and we want to do it in a way where we can show, maybe even show the country, that there are ways where you can disagree and that there's nothing wrong with someone who has a different viewpoint, but you can respectfully disagree about some of these things. I mean, in some ways, that could be one of the most important things to come out of this, like at a time when... Polarization is just a centrifuge. It's just moving everyone further apart, finding common ground or finding ways to engage. And uh, people of difference and across differences is so important. I love that. I I want to come back to on the mastery learning. I mean, how does someone, how does someone, you're rethinking the way we do assessment uh, uh, to some degree too. And I know you have like a little bit of an innovation flip to this that's very different than just sort of students taking a test. So they can you talk a little bit about that and and why that's so innovative? Sure. You know, a lot of the pieces have have, have been fitting together. I often uh, joke, and you can debate whether I'm really joking, that so many pieces are fitting together for Khan Academy or for our mission that it often feels like benevolent aliens are using us to prepare humanity for first contact. Could be a seminar topic on whether you believe that or not. But over the pandemic, Khan Academy's usage we went from about 25 million learning minutes a day to about 85 million learning minutes per day. So you can imagine a lot of people started really leaning on it, but we realized there was a gap on synchronous. And we also realized that a lot of kids were going to need more support, even more person-to-person support. And so there's always an idea in the back of our minds of like, well, what if we could give everyone on the planet free tutoring? So the next question is, how can you afford free tutoring? Well, what if you were to leverage volunteership? And so it was, it's a utopian idea, a little bit of a sociological experiment, but we created another platform, another not-for-profit sister platform to Khan Academy called schoolhouse.world, which does that. And by the end of the first summer, the experiment worked. People all over the world were tutoring each other and having great gains. And people were saying, this is a better tutoring experience than I could have, even if I paid someone in my local geography. So we started getting philanthropic funding. We started running with that. But then the immediate question was, how do we certify whether someone is capable of tutoring calculus or physics or whatever it might, or SAT prep? And we said, well, look, on Khan Academy, not only do we have instruction and practice, but it's fundamentally assessment too. It's as much assessment as you want. We have things called unit tests and course challenges, which are generated from very deep item banks. So to certify tutors, we said, well, what if a tutor can go to Khan Academy and we created a tool to do this? And while they take a unit assessment, it records their face, it records their screen, and they have to explain their reasoning out loud while they're doing the math. 
or the science or whatever else. And what if they get to 90% on that assessment, that video then gets submitted to the community for peer review. People they don't know will look at it and say, all right, yeah, it looks like looks like John got to 90%, didn't cheat, was able to explain his reasoning. We're going to certify him for unit one of algebra one. He can now begin his tutoring journey there where he'll go into training, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we realized at Khan Lab School, this isn't just useful for certifying tutors. It's useful for certifying anybody just to measure their competency. So at the lab school, this is what we've been doing for the last uh, year and a half as soon as Schoolhouse existed is that once kids get mastery on Khan Academy, they feel confident, they have to certify themselves on Schoolhouse to show that they know this material. And obviously, they have as much support as they need to do that. They have all the resources on Khan Academy. They can get free tutoring on schoolhouse.world. And then on top of that, at Khan Lab School and now at the Khan World School at ASU Prep, we're going to have these tutorial instructors. You're going to have the community there that can support you. So we're really seeing a, a world where you can kind of self-certify. And look, if you don't get to 90% on that first try, not a big deal. You can do it tomorrow. It's going to be a different set of items. And universities like MIT, University of Chicago, Case Western, They've already put it on their admissions because not only they're interested in kids that can certify themselves this way and have true mastery, but you can also imagine they're really interested in the kids that then can tutor others because that really shows you have mastery and you also have communication skills, empathy, et cetera. I love that. And the whole idea of the peer review model too, I've seen some research that shows students take that even more seriously. Like there's something when they know their peers are looking at their content or their explanation or their work. They take it a little bit more seriously than if it's just sort of a bubble test that you know goes to some un- unnamed uh, reviewer. Amy, like I know one of the, the secret sauces to ASU prep is the fact that students can get high school credit as well as earn some college credit. Can you talk a little bit? Is that going to be part of this model or is that part of the roadmap? Yeah, absolutely. In the early days of design, it's really fusing the entire course progression plan of a, of a high school student. And as soon as they're ready, being able to access university level content and get credit for that helps to sort of usurp um, having to wait to take a test. Um, they're just going to continue to move forward with being able to take ASU courses and then have ASU credit. So the fusion and integration of the high school and university level content is is a certainly a heavy design principle. That's great. And then, Amy, like just some of the nuts and bolts of this is this uh, is this a program that's open to anyone in the country? What are the what are the grades? What is it a is there a cost associated with it? Just give us the the nuts and bolts for it. Yeah, in the first year, we are welcoming two hundred rising ninth graders. And in the state of Arizona, through the charter that ASU Prep has, it would be free to any of our full-time students. And outside of the state, so nationally, it'll be just under $10,000 for a private pay tuition and then internationally just under $13,000. And so our desire is for next year for that to be uh, available and to increase the or expand the access for ninth through 12th grade. And hopefully, and what, what's interesting is the uh, inquiries, the volume of inquiries that we're getting are not just where it's free in Arizona, which is really demonstrating, you know, how the, the, the markets demand for this. We have quite a bit of, as you can imagine, California and um, New York and Florida demand. And then we also have quite a bit of inquiry internationally. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out for our student base. Yeah, that's amazing. I, 
I've seen this on some recent polling too, that there's, I mean, for as bad as remote learning was for many families, a lot of families and a lot of kids found out they really resonated with it and they want, they want that sort of option moving forward. So it feels like this is going to be a, a great opportunity for that. I, I'm just kind of curious too, like, um, do you have any advice for public policymakers? And I'm thinking here, particularly governors, like, are there things governors could be doing or should be doing that can help sell your vision of what you're talking about with mastery-based learning? Are there policy barriers there that need to be removed? Or are there things they can do to create some tailwinds to help accelerate this? I would say the biggest one is pretty much every state, maybe with the exception of New Hampshire, their requirements for their state university system is seat time-based. So they'll say, you know, you need uh, X Carnegie units, you know, three years of math to go to Arizona State or to go to go to the Cal system or to go to the, the CUNY system or whatever it might be. You need four years of English. You need this or that. That's all seat time based. And what they really should say is you can you have shown competency in algebra two. You have shown competency in this. You, you can you can write at this level. You have you have shown mastery or competency in you know the following humanities courses that would work a lot that would completely unpack the ability to do something like like this we're creating some hacks so that we can connect between the world of competency and the world of seat time it's kind of funny because the current rules will say you need to take 4 years of math but we have kids at con lab school who have taken uh who got a 5 in ap calculus when they're in 7th or 8th grade so do they need to sit in four years, even though they've are, they're already way more qualified than 95% of kids applying to college or going to college right now? No, they, they, they've already shown the competency in it. Uh, and they really showed it. They didn't just sit in a class and, and you know, kind of do their homework. They, they actually know the material. So I think that competency-based framework at the state level would, would make a huge difference. That's great. You both have been so generous with your time. So Sal, thank you. Amy, Thank you so much. Thanks for taking time and Sal for joining us on another Zoom. I know it's the last thing you need in the midst of all the other requests today, but we appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tech Enabled. And special thanks to Matthew Glavish and the AI's communications and digital strategy teams for their help in producing this episode. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps others to find the show and we always benefit from your feedback. We'll see you on the next episode.